spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics, and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research, and struggle. Hello everyone, uh, today we're coming back on the Phenomenalist podcast uh, regular series uh, for a conversation with uh, Gio Meher, uh, who's uh, um, uh, the author of three already published books, uh, Recreated Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution in, to, in 2013, Building the Commune, Radical Democracy in Venezuela, and we're going to talk a lot about that today in 2016. Uh, decolonia- decolonizing Dialectics in 2017, and then he's uh, publishing no less than three more books in 2021. Uh, the first one, A World Without Police, uh, which will be published by Verso, Spirals of Revolts, uh, published by Common, Common Notions, as well as The Cunning of Decolonization, that will be published by the University of California Press. Um, uh, hi, Gio. Hi, it's so good to be here with you, Leopold. Thank you so much for taking the time today, and uh, and uh, I should I should add that we are recording this conversation uh, for our thirty fourth issue of the magazine Fox thirty fourth already thirty <laughs> uh, fourth issue of the mag- of the Phenomenalist magazine that will be uh, a sort of homage uh, to the Paris Commune for its hundred fiftieth birthday, but uh, we don't want it to be. Um, we don't want it to be a sort of very Parisian-centric uh, uh, issue as we are uh, working on the magazine from Paris and that would be a comfortable thing for us to do but we, we'd rather want to very much build on the internationalism that um, uh, the, the commune spirit was part of but also more generally how, how the Paris commune came from an internationalist uh, sort of spirit. And, uh, and talk a lot about um, communal experience uh, that preceded or were contemporary of the Paris Commune or uh, followed it uh, uh, sometimes uh, many, many decades after. And that's what we're going to talk about today with uh, those Venezuelan commune, uh, communes. Uh, so so let's, get to, let's get to it. Um, uh, so as I, as I was mentioning, uh, this issue uh, is... Uh, as the Paris Commune, as a, at least as a starting point, and I know that uh, Gio, you've been uh, presenting your book and your work around the, around the Venezuelan Commune. You, I sort of sense that you didn't want to overly uh, uh, overly uh, provide a genealogy that would be too directly coming from the Paris Commune, and perhaps preferring sometimes uh, influence coming from from Yugoslavia, for example, but also something very immanent to to Venezuela. And it's uh, in particular it's uh, it's indigenous nations and uh, and Afro communities. Um, 
but but since this issue is specifically dedicated on that, perhaps I still I still wanted to ask you what what might be the 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 common points that we one might see between the Venezuela communes and perhaps even less the Paris commune itself than the several communes that were initiated in uh, 1871 in France. I mean the Paris Paris one was definitely the the most prominent one, but there, there had been some uh, some other uh, attempts, in particular in Marseille, um, and and they were meant to work a little bit together, like a, like a sort of archipelago. Uh, so even though there might be more differences and common things, uh, could you perhaps tell us how what those communes have in common? And maybe here I'm thinking of the way they're related to space, in particular how they embody what you call yourself a, a territorial so socialism. Could you tell us more about that? Certainly. I think that's a great question. And I think that, you know, in particular, framing it around the question of time and space uh, is, is essential. Um, the resonances of the Paris Commune in Latin America, in Venezuela, of course, were uh, crucial, were important. Uh, and yet, uh, on some level, the same kind of displacement, I think that's required to grasp the Paris Commune itself in its own trajectory is required on a grander scale, I think, to think about communes across uh, the world. So just as Paris is not simply Paris, right? Paris is part of a broader uh, network and, and archipelago of, of communal experiences, um, territorially, spatially, geographically. Um, so too, do we have to, I think, think about the relationships between not just one center of the communal experience, uh, but many centers, many small islands of communal activity, um, and the way that these are connected in historical dialectical chains. Um, and so again, in Paris, we're talking about the prehistories, the tiny dialectics that generate the experience of the Paris Commune, the framework of the Paris Commune, that then connected later to other experiences, to Lenin and other thinkers uh, theorizing what the Commune means and looks like. The same is true of uh, of Latin America. The same is true of, of Venezuela, where you can begin to look back from the Venezuelan experience of today, the history of the revolutionary communes, and, and see Paris as one reference point. Also see Yugoslavia as a reference point, and also see many experiences that come long before the Paris Commune. In other words, uh, long histories of indigenous communalism, uh, long experiences of uh, Afro-Venezuelan uh, cumbes and, and communes that are developed in uh, runaway slave or cimarron communities. These all form part of uh, you know, a broader communal fabric, uh, you know, and, and methodologically they speak to the need to um, not only always understand these experiences in connection with each other temporally, spatially, uh, but also to decolonize this concept of the commune a bit too, which, you know, by which I mean simply to understand the way that these uh, these histories and these trajectories, um, uh, you know, existed in reality and where these experiences come from and how these draw us forward to what has been a, you know, a, a very complex but inspiring communal project today. And can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you call territorial socialism? So in Venezuela, um, you know, for, for people that are familiar with the Bolivarian process, you've had this still very overlooked uh, process of developing uh, experiences and organs of direct democratic uh, community participation. 
on the one hand, these are, you know, these come from above. They come from uh, the, you know, projects that were developed by the state under President Hugo Chavez. First, what were called communal councils developed, um, you know, in the mid-2000s and later toward the end of the decade, um, more explicitly what were called communes. The communal councils were uh, an instance of political participation on the community level, which allowed people to come together in their neighborhood and to make very important and directly democratic and binding decisions about like development projects where they live. However, one question um, that the communal uh, councils raised was the degree to which uh, the political was still on some degree separate from the economic. Um, you know, there were project funds to be requested from the state uh, for development projects that, you know, that could then be distributed. But the main leap forward when it comes to the communes a few years later um, which, aside from their size and their scale, there being these larger conglomerations of communal councils, is that they also incorporated production. They also incorporated the question of what it is that the community needs and needs to produce and how to do so. So in the communes, um, a, a, you know, a communal parliament makes decisions about what to produce, about uh, who's going to work, how many hours they're going to work, what they're going to be paid, and how to distribute the surplus uh, within the community, how to reinvest it in community development. In other words, it's an attempt to uh, develop and to create a truly democratic, socialist, local uh, economy and, and society. Um, this, as I mentioned, uh, on one level comes from above, but at the same time, part of the task of Venezuelan history and all sort of revolutionary history is to grasp the relationship of the above and the below, the much longer history of grassroots participation. So these communal councils that the government uh, institutes starting around 2006 were in many ways built on the foundations laid by spontaneous grassroots revolutionary organizing in the 1980s and 90s, specifically what were called the barrio assemblies, um, local grassroots assemblies. And, and what the government then did was to institute and, and incorporate these. Um, there's a complexity here where something is lost in the incorporation of popular power, but there's also an important uh, step forward, of course, that, that this represents uh, um, as well. And this, in some ways, speaks to this broader question of these, you know, these sources uh, of, of the, you know, of the communes and even of the, you know, what's called the communal state. So this is a, Chavez, a, a phrase that Chavez introduced um, he called it the communal state. He said we're moving toward the communal state. And what he meant, to be absolutely clear, was no more and no less than the disintegration of the centralized Venezuelan state. And it's a replacement with a full society of communal council power. That was the vision that remains for many the vision uh, today, no matter how erased it is uh, by events and by conscious effort. Um, but this phrase, the communal state, actually draw is drawn from a uh, armed guerrilla comandante named Kleber Ramirez Rojas, who was one of the most important guerrilla commanders of the 70s and, and 80s in the armed struggle. Um, but who then, and here's the sort of underground history that, that I often try to remind people of, that, but that many don't know, uh, who then collaborated with Chavez in underground clandestine organizing and conspiring in the 1980s and 90s, and who was involved in Chavez's failed, uh, his failed coup in 1992. If that coup were successful, the government that would have been instituted according to documents that, that Kleber Ramirez himself drew up would have been a what he called a comunero society, a society of communal council structures, a confederated uh, radical grassroots democracy of producers. In other words, a true revolutionary communism. 
Well, wonderful. I think that was a fantastic sort of prologue to everything we're going to talk about from, from now on. But so perhaps we can try to, uh, to sort of back up a little bit and then uh, readdress uh, each of those points one by one. Uh, the first one being the political context itself. Of course, each of the communal experience is very specific to the political context in which it emerges. Um, and so perhaps could we come back in a sort of, it's a bit, it's always a bit dumb to work chronologically, but it's, it, it loses, it, uh, it wins in a pedagogic uh, dimension what it loses in uh, originality. Um, and so can we perhaps come back to uh, the sort of genesis of, uh, of those communes that you place in your book to 1989? Uh, all the way to their realization in 2010. Um, and of course, uh, as you already sort of pointed out, uh, Chavez is, uh, is central to, the, to this political context. But some things that I definitely learned uh, in reading you is how Chavez might have been sort of almost the only person as part of the Venezuelan state who was really, really betting on the communes, as you, as you, as you say yourself, whereas the rest of the state was very much trying to perhaps control them or limit them or can you can you tell us more about this sure so in the in the most direct terms the origins of the bolivarian revolution come not when chavez was elected in 1998 not even when he tried to sort of storm uh, you know storm the gates of power in 1992 in a failed coup um, but a few years before that, in a mass rebellion of 1989 called the Caracaso. It's, this is a rebellion against neoliberalism. It's a mass revolt. It's a week-long riot in which poor people took over the wealthy areas of the cities, um, scaring the shit out of elites and really making it clear to everyone that things couldn't go on as they, as they were. The, uh, you know, this is the origin. This is the breaking point of Venezuelan history. At the same time, we need to recognize that there were decades of organizing, uh, decades of armed struggle that led to this point. And I try to track the nuances of that organizing, both the methods, the mechanisms, the demands that were put forth in, in We Created Chavez. But it's this breaking point that, uh, you know, inaugurates the Bolivarian Revolution. It destroys the old political parties and it creates a space into which someone like Chavez is then able to step. And his 1992 coup is, is initially... Uh, supposed to be timed to coincide with the anniversary of that mass popular revolt. Chavez was a soldier. He was also in direct contact with the revolutionary underground. And so he was sort of wearing two uh, hats. But in 1989, during the the, you know, the uprising, um, he was not, but many of his, uh, you know, many of his colleagues were sent into the barrios to slaughter people that looked just like them. And this was, um, you know, the point at which there was no, uh, the point of no return, uh, as it were. The space of possibility opened by this insurrection and the mass organizing that, you know, begins to develop in and around it and after it is really what creates the possibility for um, this broader revolutionary movement. Um, it creates the impetus for the councils in the, in the neighborhoods. It creates a grassroots framework that then is picked up by radical uh, organizers as a model for organizing. And... From the very beginning, there's controversy over this. From the very beginning, there are people who have, uh, you know, in many ways justifiably uh, different frameworks for understanding the, the, the process of getting to socialism. You know, uh, the Bolivarian Revolution itself and the leadership were always divided between those who uh, in many ways trusted the grassroots 
and those who saw definitely a more top-down process, um, maybe on what they saw at least as the Cuban model of, of keeping a very tight rein on revolutionary forces and taking concrete steps toward uh, establishing uh, you know, the strength of a movement that can then seize power. Um, and and that, that dynamic and that tension persisted. Uh, you know, in building the commune, I tell the story of probably one of the most successful communes in central western Venezuela, in Venezuela called El Maizal, which is a huge corn commune, massive, growing tons of corn uh, every year, um, uh, and which began with grassroots struggle, began with local, uh, you know, poor people seizing the land that had fallen into disuse um, under its private ownership, demanding the government intervene and allow them to take that land, allow them to... Uh, uh, nationalize it and communalize it, um, but those were and ended up being two different steps, as it were. So uh, you know, Chavez intervened, showed up, gave a speech, demand, you know, insisted and, and announced that the, the lands would be nationalized, and yet what happened in the first stage was that they were simply taken over by the state. You know, they they were taken over um, by the state agricultural corporation, and they remained as uh, underused and under you know, uh, productive as, as they were in private hands. And so the revolutionary grassroots had to organize and struggle again to demand those lands be communalized, to demand that, that they be handed over to the communal parliament to be directly and democratically managed. And so you have this, on the one hand, this role that Chavez plays, and he's not the only one, but of course he was the crucial point of leverage in the fulcrum for communal power within the state, which gives us, I think, a, a window into a more complex understanding of the state and how it uh, how it operates. Um, but also you have a low-scale war between the grassroots and sort of party uh, elites. Um, we shouldn't overly simplify this, and we shouldn't, I think, use it to wash away some of the very real tensions confronted by, uh, you know, by the Venezuelan revolution. Uh, but if you ask these grassroots leaders at El Maisal, they would say, listen, you know, socialists, so-called socialists, are our biggest enemies in practice. We confront them every day. They don't want our power to grow because it's a threat to their power. Um, and, and so, and this tension, uh, you know, really continued and continues up to the very present. Uh, the past few years, of course, have been incredibly difficult. The communal project has been challenged, um, has been put on the back foot, has seen, of course, dramatic uh, funding cuts based on the, the economic crisis itself, um, but in the context of that crisis has also um, confronted a rollback in the sense that, uh, you know, there are a great many party elites who want to embrace a pragmatic alliance with the private sector and with national capitalism as a path forward. Um, that path has never worked. And so I was among many and have been among many who really want to insist that the, the only path out of the economic crisis of the present is a communal path. It's the only path that really forges a different kind of economy that thinks about a Venezuela that is not fully dependent on oil to fund imported goods, but instead thinks about what needs to be produced locally and how to democratically produce those things. Um, and that resolves the tensions of that oil economy, not by embracing the global economy or by cutting itself off from it, but by developing these grassroots democratic alternatives. Going back now to the idea of space, and uh, as you know, is, uh, is a key notion in, uh, in the Funambulist, um, you've wrote that Venezuela is one of the most urban countries in Latin America with over 93% of its population living in cities, which is quite st staggering. 
Um, and so a whole chapter of your book is dedicated to the forms of self-organization of the barrios in the, in the, city, in the cities themselves, I mean, Caracas and, and others. Uh, including the what I'm calling here the skyscraper barrios that the Tory David has embodied for several years, and uh, don't get me started on how architects have been uh, architects in the West or in the North have been uh, fascinated by by this tower with a, with a complete apolitical uh, reading of it. <laughs> it made me mad uh, long enough. Um, but uh, as you also write, the communes in Venezuela has been mostly emerging in the countryside itself. And so those, this sort of like, I don't know if it's a dialectic, maybe not, but uh, those, those two, those two aspects make me think of the way that uh, Marx himself was perceiving the projects that the Paris Commune was supposed to embody. Uh, in uh, in his book on um, civil war in France, uh, so the Paris Commune and its relationship with the uh, neighboring rural communities. Um, could you pr please tell us about this relation between the the two spaces of the urban and the rural? Absolutely, and of course, I'd love to hear at some point your thoughts on reactionary architect. There's a sort of fascination uh, with uh, not only the appearance of the poor in the center of the city and the fear that that evokes, um, but also with the architect as, as a heroic uh, solver of problems through sort of mechanical solutions. Um, and, and that's very much present in Venezuela and in the fascination that Venezuela you know, provokes uh, elsewhere. But the question of, of space and territoriality is, is essential to not only thinking through the commune, but thinking through its particular manifestation in Venezuela and thinking through Venezuelan socialism as a project. Um, you know, so if I talked about connecting the Paris Commune and other communal experiences in this broad fabric, each of these requires a certain kind of historicization, contextualization to allow us to think through the particular contours and parameters. What that means for Venezuela is understanding the history of that spatiality. Um, I've done this in Caracas as a city, and that's really just a reflection, a sort of pressure point and pressure cooker um, of a much broader process, which is the process of urbanization in Venezuela, itself the direct result uh, of the oil economy. Venezuela would have been urbanized uh, on some level regardless. Um, many other countries in Latin America were for similar reasons, but oil, the discovery of oil a century ago, really heightened and amplified and sped up this process of urbanization. This had as much to do with government policy as anything else. Essentially, the government uh, turned all of its attention to oil and turned its attention away from the countryside, from the agricultural sector, and from any kind of dedication to supporting uh, rural uh, farmers and workers and campesinos. And so as oil wealth collected in the cities and in the urban areas, so too did the people. They abandoned the land, they were pushed off the land, large landowners provided the push while the uh, you know, the wealth in the cities provided the pull factors. Um, and so you found the urbanization of Venezuela proceeding apace in the 60s and in the 1970s. Um, as a result of this, what you have is a country that produces a great deal of oil, which is worth uh, a great deal on the global market, and which produces almost no food and almost very little of, of anything else. So this oil economy um, is completely designed around and embedded within the global market, and that persists to this day. There were efforts to, uh, you know, to counteract that. Chavismo arrived to power with a, a vision and an understanding and a theorization of that. Interestingly enough, this was a theorization that was also developed um, 
within the, the armed struggle. Uh, sectors of the armed guerrilla struggle were developing a different understanding of how to approach the oil e- uh, economy um, and how to uh, engage in what was later called endogenous development, this sort of heterogeneous uh, uh, you know, Marxist in development theory um, that meant and that you know, implied developing the country on the basis of what was necessary internally as opposed to what the global markets were demanding. Um, what this all means for the commune is, you know, is a great deal of tension and contradict. On the one hand, a truly communal economy is not one that depends this heavily on the global market, much less uh, for something like uh, oil. Um, a communal economy means the incredibly difficult task of reversing a century of historical demographic development. It means on some level, um, re, uh, sort of redistributing the population. It means reversing uh, what uh, Franz Fanon called in The Wretched of the Earth the macrocephaly of the capital city, the fact that everything collects in the capital. And this is a specifically colonial model of development, right? The capital is the interface with the global world and with the colonial core. Um, and, and so this is the point at which all exports and resources are extracted. And this is why the capital city is so big uh, as well. Rolling back this process is incredibly difficult. And this is precisely why the Venezuelan opposition today, the neoliberal opposition, has no alternative to uh, this pattern of development, just as many, uh, you know, uh, even within Chavismo don't have an alternative, you know, because if you don't grapple with this deep and profound historical uh, architecture of the Venezuelan economy and society, then you, you really can't even begin to get to the, the heart of the, the problems that are confronted. Um, what this means in terms of building uh, Venezuelan socialism is, of course, complicated as well. And so, you know, I speak, uh, you know, in, in the book in terms of small islands of socialism, not only across the world, but across Venezuela, um, about these small experiments, some, some large, some small, but still a mi- minority of the economy, but beginning to develop and build um, and extend threads to one another and to weave a broader fabric of the communal economy so that you have communal axes, for example, especially in central West Venezuela, producing coffee and plantains and corn and being able to exchange these directly outside of the capitalist market with one another, one another to develop um, this, uh, you know, this broader fabric. You know, there there was, you know, in the history of sort of socialist literature, a great deal of conversation about, well, small islands of socialism are an impossibility. And part of what I said in Building the Commune is that, I mean, you can say that it's impossible, but regardless of, of, of what we would like to be the case, that is the reality. And so how is it that we then begin to think spatially of generating, uh, you know, a communal structure um, that's more like an extensive web than a single territory. How do we connect those disparate territories into a broader project that's able to become a project of power? Well, I'm I'm very glad to hear uh, you talking about islands because that's that's also the way um, the sort of the way through which I'm trying to think of uh, of this different paradigm of sovereignty that I think the commune is able to to provide us with and. Uh, I remember trying to make sense out of it when being part of Occupy Wall Street, which sounds, seems such a long time ago, and it's, diffi- it's also difficult to to think of Occupy Wall Street now with uh, without like a, a 
a lot of a lot of layers of criticism we can we can make to what we what we used to do there um but still like i think i think there was something about about the sort of this importance of starting from where our from the body from the space the bodies occupy uh, quite simply uh in the case of in the case of occupy uh, it was uh, it was of course uh, some sort of specific uh, squares or whatever, but I think uh, it's it's even much it's even much more interesting when it comes to the communes because then we're talking about uh, people's neighborhoods, uh, and then and then sort of going going through the various layers of sovereignty from this order. Like right now, we are in the opposite order with the nation state, and uh, and starting from the starting from the nation or starting even from like a bigger. A global organization like the IMF or or other, and then going down and going down to the scale of the neighborhood that has uh, close to no agency uh, whatsoever, and so thinking of the commune allows us to think uh, the the other way around. Uh, but also, I think I really I really like this idea of the island and the archipelago because I think it it also always refer, make me come back to Edouard Glissant and and his uh, sort of simultaneous understanding of, of an archipelago with, which is from himself being from the, from Martinique um, but also a more a more figurative archipelago of um, to, to, to be able to talk about identity to be able to, to, be able to, to talk about boundaries without uh, the sort of uh, sort of militarized way in which we understand boundaries now and so um, and so I think I mean you know I think you already started by describing the Venezuela communes as uh, as being islands, but I, I think could 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 we perhaps go even further in this in the way uh, this notion of islands and this notion of very territorial dimension, uh, a small small territorial and what we may want to call the local, even though that sounds a little bit uh, too hip for my test, uh, but how, how, it, um, how it helps us to think of a new paradigm of sovereignty? Certainly. Um, and I think, you know, I, the point you're making is a crucial one, which is that, you know, in a way, the idea that small islands of socialism were an impossibility was a reaction to kind of socialism in one country. It was a sort of reaction to um, the maybe the third world concept of autarky, of cutting oneself off completely um, and, and trying to build, you know, an autonomous uh, socialism. Um, and, you know, and we see more as a tragedy, you know, we can see that as a tragedy that that's our starting point, or we can grasp the fact that, as you point out, that having that as our starting point also can entail and can imply a very different vision of the commune, right? A very different vision about how that power um, scales up. Um, you know, if I take your point, and this is certainly true uh, of the Venezuelan uh, experience. And uh, again, speaking to the sort of decolonized communal understanding in which we're not drawing simply from Paris, but from indigenous sources and picking up concepts from across Latin America. The the concept that people draw on in Venezuela, you know, comes from one of Simon Bolivar's teachers, Simon Rodriguez, who, who uh, spoke of what he called toparchy, la toparquia, which, you know, speaks to these small islands of for what well, for him was kind of republican sovereignty we're talking a couple hundred years ago in venezuela but what rodriguez was was calling for was even at that point a displacement of sovereignty 
um, a you know a recognition that the sovereign states that were effectively being imposed by the colonial order even after national liberation right building states on the European model um, was going to be a disaster and that there needed to be in Venezuela the development of some kind of decentralized form of power um, and, and that's precisely why people have been picking up on this concept of, of the toparquia in the present I, you know I visited a commune in, in southeast of, of Caracas. Um, you know, outside of the city, and, and uh, you know, and, and, you know, and, and there's a small dog running around. And I asked what the dog's name was, and they said El Topo. Um, and, and it was a direct reference to the fact that Chavez, in his ideological work, was able to popularize these kinds of ideas that are really profound uh, political theoretical concepts for reframing and rethinking how to build a new world, and, and that these would reached the very level of this small little commune, uh, which was drawing upon and inspired by the idea of themselves being a small island that could then connect with and network with others in a, you know, in a broader communal uh, struggle. So that absolutely speaks to a, a broader understanding. In practice, there, you know, there have been attempts to do this, um, both as it were from below and, and from above. From below, you know, you know, I can speak just to the sort of tireless energy and, and, and work of grassroots organizers who were themselves simply going around advising people on how to establish small socialist enterprises. You know, if they were in, an, you know, a sort of enemy controlled territory, uh, you know, how to connect them to a commune, which maybe is a few miles away or 20 miles away, how to trade their goods, how to exchange them um, and how to, uh, you know, build themselves into this broader process. From above, it looked like uh, an attempt to really um, establish a confederated power of the communes. And so communes would elect uh, state-level communal assemblies, which then would elect, you know, and send representatives to what was called the presidential, uh, you know, council. And this council, this is in the early years of Nicolás Maduro, this council would directly relate to and interface with, uh, with the president. This points to a long-standing you know, tension, you know, incredibly controversial, of course, for more liberal voices in Venezuela, which is the degree to which the communal structure has been outside of the liberal democratic apparatus. Um, not only in, in Chavez's own direct intervention in expropriations in helping to establish communes, but in the fact that these communes don't answer to uh, elected uh, officials or officials, I should say, that are elected through the liberal democratic process. In other words, local mayors, state governors, um, or the national government. Um, you know, but what is a contradiction for liberal democracy is in fact the entire fucking point when it comes to the communal project, which is not to build something that is a part of liberal democratic centralized state sovereignty, but to build something very different. And so you have in Venezuela two kinds of state. Um, you have a, a kind of conflict between two different visions of sovereignty and what those would look like. Of course, these sort of contaminate and interpenetrate one another. Of course, there's participation built into the liberal democratic constitution of 1999. Um, at the same time that there is a, a sort of kind of impotence and, and uh, limitation um, you know, that has never fully been overcome when it comes to these communal elected assemblies, right? They, they interface with, with Maduro, but they, they're not fully themselves yet a kind of alternative sovereign power that can claim to be such. 
Um, but at the very least, what we have is a living, breathing example of a war between two very different kind of powers. You know, something which I've, you know, conceptualized in the past in, in terms of Lenin's concept of dual power, which was precisely a concept of the commune, if we think about it, um, but an extended, drawn out war of position between two very different kinds of power. And that's, you know, in, in a very complex and painful way today, still the war that is uh, raging in Venezuela. Uh, as a last question, I, I might uh, bring us back to both Marx and uh, and uh, sort of drawing parallels between uh, the Paris Commune and uh, and the, Vene the Venezuela Communes um, by uh, by paraphrasing Marx when he he said about the Paris Commune that the, the most important creation of the Paris Commune was the Commune itself, like. And uh, and one of the person you interviewed in your in your research had a very similar uh, had a very similar uh, phrase uh, saying that besides the production uh, communes would do of uh, I don't know uh, coffee uh, corn uh, uh, or any other sort of uh, production as uh, as you described earlier uh, being in within within a um, Within a sort of uh, factor, uh, factory or uh, or business that uh, belongs to the commune itself, uh, be besides the sort of very literal production, there is also a, a less literal understanding of the production which is producing the commune itself. Uh, could you could you perhaps tell us about this? Certainly, um, and I think uh, you know one important thing to say is, uh, you know that you know we need to understand that Marx himself, of course, was a product of these tensions. Uh, you know, it's specifically the from above and the from below, right? Someone who spent much of his life, of course he was organizing, certainly organizing, but also writing critique, right? He was writing critique of political economy. Um, and then the Paris Commune happens, right? Um, and this has a huge impact on him, uh, you know? And, you know, when he, when he says, for example, that the Commune is the political form at last discovered, under which to work out the economic emancipation of labor. This is in part a self-criticism, right? He's saying, listen, Paris showed us what we should have been doing, showed us a form, showed us a way to concretely organize and arrange society. That is communist, right? We who have been speaking of communism for so long, um, you know, had to discover this form through the practical activity of the class in its aspiration to self-government. Um, and I think this writ large is, is what we're talking about similarly in Venezuela, in, in these tensions and in these ways that different theories can be drawn in, but also the practice um, is, is a huge part of the process. Uh, for example, the, at the same time that you had the uh, Ministry of Communes in Venezuela attempting to establish a categorization of what would count as a commune to then count the communes to then build the communes from above um, you had activists who had been working in the ministry resigning to form a different kind of network of communes because they felt that the definition of commune should not come prior to the experience of commune and should be you know you know exist in a far more dynamic relationship and i think these you know these relationships uh, between the theoretical and the practical and the from above and from below are are crucial and and constant reminders of these you know uh, uh, you know of these processes um in venezuela as i mentioned uh, precisely because of this colonial and extractivist history um and geography and territory um the one of the main questions is the question of production um there's really no way around it. And, and you know, 
all of the sort of, uh, I guess I would say, slightly more European theories of, uh, you know, uh, you know, anti-work theories um, are uh, provocative and interesting, but they also don't help us to overcome uh, the very fact of what happens in, econo- in an economy where um, there is not enough things being made. You know, we're, we're at a very different position when it comes to Marx's conceptualization of communism of the future as a communism of, um, you know, of surplus, you know, and of, uh, you know, the absence of scarcity. Um, and this is essential to the crisis that's playing out in Venezuela today. So uh, the way that the communes confront this is, is you know, is not easy. Um, many communes are established in some of the more radical Chavista barrios around the urban areas, which is, you know, the basis of a great deal of the population, the political spearhead that brought Chavismo to power through mass rebellion. And yet these are territories where nothing is produced. Um, These are territories that don't make anything uh, in which people live and circulate to work. And where where they go to work, often in the city, is not producing anything either. They're working in services or distribution, simple distribution. Um, And the communes that have been built in the countryside are far more productive. Um, they produce what is necessary. They produce more than they need. And so, you know, one of the uh, tasks has been to create conveyor belts of political relationships and economic production that can connect these communal experiences in the cities um, and in the countryside. Um, but but it also means uh, thinking differently about, what, about production uh, itself. Again, this only takes us so far in a country where things really do need to be made, where people really do need food, where there isn't enough being imported, where there isn't now enough oil money to import enough for people to uh, to eat, you know, everything that they re- require. Um, but we also need to think about, as the as the former commune minister Ronaldo Torriza puts it, the commune as something that is produced, right? It itself is the product. Is the product. Um, and this is what Chavez called the communal spirit, uh, a new way and kind of being together. Um, and one of the examples I like to give that I give, uh, you know, in, in the book as well, is this, uh, you know, small commune in, in southern Caracas in a very urban area founded by a bunch of young dudes who, um, you know, who wanted to build, uh, you know, a local commune in their area. Um, and yet the first concrete product of their commune uh, was a gang truce. Um, and so on the one hand, it's a good example because it's a, it's something that's very immaterial in a certain sense, but absolutely and clearly material that allows for a different material relationship with the local world and territory and allows for a greater political consolidation of consciousness, of power. And so these are the kind of products that are also being produced, uh, you know, in, you know, in the neighborhoods that don't concretely produce anything. But the tension of production is at the very heart, you know, of, uh, you know, of the crisis today. On the other hand, um, the reality is, and this is, again, this is sort of just, you know, harping on the commune as the only possible solution to the contemporary and historical crisis of Venezuelan oil dependence, um, the fact that um, there's really no alternative to, you know, to the commune, that even in the context of this crisis, and in many ways because of the crisis in which there is no oil money to import all these goods, the Imported food, for example, has collapsed, and this is an absolute humanitarian tragedy. It's been amplified by Obama's and Trump's uh, sanctions. Um, Tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands, have died as a result of this crisis and the sanctions. Um, But at the same time, the 
oil economy is no longer able to provide what people need. And so communes have been stepping up to do what they can. They've been, you know, developing alternative structures, alternative distribution networks. Um, and while this is not certainly not enough, and, you know, and while, uh, you know, we need to be fully dedicated to the task of lifting sanctions and allowing Venezuelans to breathe and to eat and to live as a way, as a precondition for then building, um, you know, building this, this communal vision, the communes are the solution in many ways to this economic crisis. Well, um, as, a real con as a real concluding question, actually, um, it, it, theoretically, it seems like the, commune could also, the communes could also be a good way to, um, to, to, to minimize the impact that uh, something like last year's uh, US-backed coup has been, uh, has been uh, doing in Venezuela. Uh, uh, because of course, if uh, because the coup is, will always be involving the, the sort of the national the nation the nation state itself, and uh, and uh, which in the in the paradigm of sovereignty that the commune suggests uh, is less important than uh, than in the sort of very um, very top down uh, nation state uh, paradigm. But uh, how much would you say it's true in in practice uh, following following last year's uh, I mean, it's certainly the case, and, and you'll, I think you'll find very interesting this sort of, again, like under-recognized element of, of debates in Chavista, Venezuela, again, about more than a decade ago uh, uh, now, um, over the structure of the military. Um, so on the one hand, Chavismo has always embraced um, the arming of mass militias of the everyday people, um, but this has coexisted, you know, this is a direct parallel to the political question of the coexistence of two states is the coexistence of two militaries, right? A grassroots militia military coexisting with the hierarchical structure of the traditional military. Um, but there was an open debate involving a retired general who, who died a few years ago. Um, and, and he was essentially insisting that Chavismo means the abolition of the traditional hierarchy of the military. It means the arming of all people as the best, not only defense of a revolutionary process internally, right? The, the people armed, which is of course a, an essential aspect of the Paris Commune, um, the people armed, all of them, um, as the best defense of their own communal uh, structure, um, but also as the best defense from foreign intervention uh, and invasion. Um, and this is absolutely true. You have grassroots militias that exist in the you know, in the furthest reaches of the Colombian border that have been fighting back against paramilitaries and paramilitary infiltration, you have everyday people who are intervening to, uh, you know, to resist uh, foreign invasion. You had, uh, you know, people that saw these, these fucking uh, U.S.-backed mercenaries who tried this really ham-fisted invasion attempt uh, with a boat landing on the, on the Caribbean coast, and they were caught by fishermen, right? They were caught by just everyday Venezuelan Chavista workers who caught them, took them prisoner, um, you know, and held them. And, you know, and, and this is absolutely true. Um, and it does speak to this question, uh, which, you know, which you raise uh, of the question of how is it that we understand sovereignty? How is it that we understand power? And it's insofar as we begin to think about communal power, whether we call it sovereignty or not, as an alternative structure, but as a serious alternative, that I think we can, uh, you know, begin to build uh, not only movements, um, but also different forms of local self-government that are far more powerful uh, than what exists today.
Wonderful. Well, I can see that you you're very good at the art of conclusion <laughs> drafting. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gio, and uh, I'm very I'm very happy that we get to include this conversation in uh, in this thirty fourth issue, uh, as well as uh, as our regular podcast. So thanks again very much for your time and. Uh, no, thanks so much for having me, Leopold.